Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold, and we're going to have a wonderful hour with Jeff Ferdorn. We did uh, the End Time series, and I remember it, during one of the episodes, he had something really amazing to talk about, and I cut him off, which I should never do. <laughs> <laughs> so today, we're going to call this an addendum to the End Time series, and we're going to talk about in detail what I cut him off from talking about, and we're going to entitle this The Bride, The Groom, and the wedding banquet. That's what we're going to discuss today. Jeff is a Bible teacher, but mostly a friend and mentor, and he's one of my first calls I make when I'm stuck on something. So it's always nice to have him here in studio, and and here he is. Jeff, welcome. Hi, Bill. So the bride, the groom, the wedding banquet. It sounds like something like the witch, the wardrobe, and the... The the lion, the witch, (laughs) and the wardrobe. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. This is a great, great book and movie, by the way. Yeah, of course. So, uh, yeah, it's just a little catchy title. So I just did this... Um, at actually, I'll, I'll name the church. It's called Groveland Summer Church. There's a group uh, on Lake Minnesota across from Wyzetta Bay, and it's an old Christian camp that turned into some cabins that turned into some homes. But the old barn there has been used for church services for over a hundred years. Wow. And so during the summer, they hold church there, uh, and it's called Groveland Summer Church. And I've spoken there the last few years, and it's just so cool. They store boats in the barn during the wintertime, and they have church in the in this building during the summertime. So, uh, And this is one of these things that I talked about a little bit at the end, in the End Time series. It relates to, you know, the rapture and Jesus coming back for us and so on. Uh, but it relates to this picture in Scripture of the bride and the groom. And it's kind of this relationship that God talks about, this relationship of the church to Christ as it as it relates. And he uses this picture of uh, a man and a woman in, in marriage. And it actually comes up several places in Scripture. And so what I wanted to do today was to walk through these four passages. Uh, two of them are kind of a general description of this relational thing, and two, kind of how it relates to the end time. So how does that sound? I love it. All right. So one of the pictures um, is from Ephesians 5. And this is kind of a famous passage. It's often used at weddings and so on. And it says this, starting in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body. But they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body, and for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united with his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. So first, I want you to notice this phrase, the two will become one flesh. Now, this is actually from Genesis chapter 2, where God 
talks about the design for this man and this woman. They come together into one new thing called the marriage. Jesus actually referenced this passage in Genesis when he says, but at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother, be united with his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they will no longer be two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Mark 10, also Matthew 19. Now, I know the world, especially lately, seems very confused on this understanding of what is a marriage. But to God, he's actually had a single definition from the very beginning. It was one man, one woman coming together into one marriage, uh, into a bond that was to last a lifetime. So now this phrase, one flesh. Now, this is actually kind of an interesting phrase because when you think of this physically— Obviously, I mean, I think we, we can picture the, the kind of one flesh aspect of a man and woman coming together, obviously, for reproduction, per, repro, reproducing purposes and having children and so on. So that's becoming one flesh. But spiritually, I think this is the picture of Christ and his bride, the church. So when Paul says Christ in you, the hope of glory, right? We've got this concept of Christ being in the church, indwelling the church, and becoming one. So what, what is represented physically by the husband and the wife is actually true in, spiritually with Christ indwelling the church. That's why Jesus in John 17, in this high priestly prayer, as it's called, or the prayer for believers, he says, I pray that they will be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me. Once again, Christ in his church. I tell you a mystery, they will become one. So, I mean, think about this concept that the God of the universe is dwelling in us. We are now one with God through faith in Christ. And it's just this amazing spiritual union that happens when you believe and are saved. In fact, the old Latin word for this is unio mystica, the mystical union of of God, somehow the God of the universe who created all things dwells in us lowly people when we believe in him and are saved. So amazing concept. I feel like I've already gotten my money's worth. If we want to, <laughs> if we want to end right now, I'd be happy. You know, this concept of, of Christ, of God dwelling in us, um, I think Christian, it is, it really is. Because if, if we truly understood our identity in Christ, I think many of other, our other problems that we tend to have as Christians would just melt away. All right, 2 Corinthians 11 is another one. And in verse 2, it says this. Uh, Paul says, I promised you to one husband to Christ so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. Well, here's this metaphor again of the husband and the wife, and, and now we're presented as a pure virgin. The church is a pure virgin to Christ. Wow, that's amazing. This is another one of these amazing kind of truths, that when we are saved, we receive the righteousness of Christ. Theologians call this imputed righteousness. He cleanses us. Paul in Colossians 1 says that we are without blemish. We are free from accusation. In Ephesians 1, he says he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. The church, all believers in Christ, are holy and blameless in God's sight because we've been cleansed. We have been forgiven. 
And so, yes, Paul can say the church is presented to God as this pure virgin. Whoa. All right. So, I mean, that's why Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 6, where he says that he lists off this list of sins, and he says, and that's what some of you were, but you've been washed, you've been cleansed, right? And and you are that's now— That's a long list, too. It is a long list. Yeah. And I can guarantee you, everybody that's listening today will find themselves in that list someplace, because I know I do, and everybody else will, too. But you've been washed, you've been sanctified, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6. It's a done deal. Sanctification, by the way, is simply the God making you holy. And we're going to talk about this today as it relates to the bride in a minute here. Uh, But you've been sanctified. It has happened. Past tense. You have been sanctified. God has sanctified you. He has set you apart. He's made you pure. He's forgiven you of all unrighteousness. And now we are holy and righteous in his eyes. Ah, amazing. That's why Paul says this in Hebrews 12, just another verse I found. He says, so let us draw near to God with sincere hearts in full assurance of faith having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. That's how the church is now presented to Christ. So main point here, the church is the bride. We are the bride, pure virgin of a bride. We are presented to Christ who is the groom. Cool. All right, the next two passages relate more specifically now to God's plan for the end of the age, all right? So we're going to see this picture of the bride and the groom now as it relates to the end times. And uh, so this is where it gets really kind of interesting here. So Revelation 19, verse 7. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and the bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her to wear. Well, now in Revelation chapter 19, we have this wedding. The church is seen pictured here as the bride. Jesus, of course, is the groom. Now, a little context to Revelation 19. Where are we at in kind of um, God's plan for the end of the age? So Revelation 19 is right before Jesus returns at his second coming. We have the bride pictured here up in heaven. Now, remember that. That's going to be important. So the bride is already in heaven before Jesus comes back later on in this chapter. And the bride is seen in verse 14 returning to earth with Jesus, Revelation 19, verse 14. And that's when Jesus obviously destroys all the, the armies of the world, the battle of Armageddon, and all of that stuff, and he, he sets up his kingdom, the thousand-year reign on earth, and then we have this marriage supper of the Lamb. It's called in Revelation 19, verse 9. Well, if you have a wedding, you need to have a wedding supper, right? So, and here it is. So, we've, now we've seen the picture of the bride, the groom, the wedding, and the wedding supper. So, this is not a metaphor. This is actual food. This is, we will see that it is actual food. It's a literal marriage feast that is going to happen as the first thing that happens in this new millennial kingdom on earth. Okay, now we need to take a break. But when we come back, I want to ask Jeff what kind of 
food's going to be on the grill. <laughs> I assume it's going to be good. What do you want? Well, I suppose. I'll, can you order anything you want? Uh, we'll there, there's probably a limited menu. Yeah, right, right. This is a set plate, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Jeff Redorn's my guest. We continue uh, an addendum to the End Time series. This one's called The Bride, the Groom, the Wedding Banquet. Be right back. Walk-up music. Jeff Redorn's my guest, my friend, my Bible mentor and teacher, and we're talking about the bride, the groom, the wedding banquet. This is an addendum that we have to our series that we did on end times. Jeff brought this up once, and we were literally out of time, and I still felt bad that we never covered this, so we're going to sort of cover it on steroids today, aren't we? Mm -hmm. Take the full hour to cover it, and we're going to talk now about the 12 steps of the first century marriage process and how it relates so beautifully to this picture we have in Revelation about this wedding banquet. So the kickoff verse here, the the last passage, which will kick off this tradition that we're going to walk through here today so we can understand this passage, because this in context, you don't really get the, the fullness of this passage without understanding this tradition that we're going to walk through today. And that's from John chapter 14, where Jesus says this, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you, I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. Now, notice there's no reference to a bride or a groom or a wedding or a wedding banquet. But as we're going to see, this fits the process that would have gone through in the first century in Israel for a man and a woman coming together in marriage. All right? So let's start the process so we can understand what Jesus was referring to and what everybody hearing him speak this would have have understood. All right. So step one in this process, the selection of the bride. In ancient Israel, the bride was typically chosen by the groom's father. Now, this is kind of common in lots of cultures, right? We've got these arranged marriages. The groom's father chooses the bride, and and you set this thing up. As I walk through each step, I'll give a clue of how that relates to us as the bride of Christ, all right? So we are called the chosen people of God, right? The church is chosen. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, 1 Peter Two says, recognize that this has nothing to do with people being elected to salvation in this way. It means that God has selected us because as we'll see, what the bride needs to do is consent to this. And we'll see that in just a minute. This is about God choosing his bride for Christ. And we'll see that it includes us receiving him. All right. So step one, the, the bride is chosen. Step two, 
the price for the bride is paid. A marriage contract was signed by the parents of the bride and the bridegroom, and the parents of the bride and the groom himself sometimes would pay this dowry, this price, to the bride and or her parents. This began what was called the betrothal period, what we would call today as our engagement period. Now, 1 Corinthians 7 says that you, as the bride of Christ, were bought with a price. And Peter tells us what that price was. The price was the very blood of Christ, the precious blood of Christ, 1 Peter 1, 18. So the price has now been paid. Step three, the offer. The marriage contract, along with the dowry, this price, would be presented to the father and to the bride. God also offers this to whosoever, right, to become included in the bride of Christ. John 3.36 says this, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains upon him. God has paid the price for all. He offers this salvation to all, to whosoever. That's step three. Step four, the bride's consent. Now, while the bride is chosen by the groom's father, right, the bride still had a choice. She could reject the offer. I believe that God is a gentleman and that he never forces himself on anybody to force them to say, I do, to his son. Roman 10.9 says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your hearts that he's risen from the grave, you will be saved. And Revelation 3 says that Jesus stands at the door and knock. Whosoever opens the door, I will come in and eat with them and they with me. I think that picture of opening the door is that simple act of faith. You receive his offer by faith, by opening the door in that picture. And then you eat together. Ah, eat together. I actually think that's a reference to this coming banquet that's coming up. All right, so that's step four. You must give God your consent. You must receive the Lord Jesus Christ. You must accept it. All right, step five. The marriage contract called the ketubah is accepted, and get a load of this, a cup of wine would be shared to, uh, to show that they have now entered into this marriage covenant. What did Jesus say at the Last Supper? At the Last Supper, Luke 22, in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup of wine, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. So here in the first century marriage tradition, when the new covenant or the new promise was made, they would share a glass of wine. And now Jesus is saying to us, hey, here's the cup of our covenant that I'm now entering into. And if you drink this cup and I'll drink this cup, and now we've entered into this covenant relationship. Cool. That's so cool. (laughs) Step six, the gift was given to the bride. Oftentimes, after the contract was sealed and they'd have the cup of wine, then the groom or the parents of the groom would give the bride some kind of gift. It was typically something of value, like a coin or something like that. Today, generally, we use the, the engagement ring, right? 
And this engagement ring or this gift was to show them, hey, the groom is good for, and he's good for his word that even though he's about to go away, that we're going to see that in a minute, um, he will come back and he will fulfill his part of the pledge. So that's kind of what an engagement ring today says. Well, for us, we have this future marriage, if you will, that is going to happen. Well, how do we know that God is good for it? How do we know that God is going to keep his promise? Well, he's given us a gift. That gift is the Holy Spirit. Ah, And in fact, Ephesians 1.13 says this, And you were also included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation, having believed you were marked in him with the seal, the promised Holy Spirit who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. So God knows that we're sitting here waiting for this thing to happen in the future. So he gives us a gift. And this gift is his promise to say, hey, I'm good for my covenant. I'm going to make this happen. In fact, he says, as a deposit guaranteeing your future inheritance. Hmm. So talk about the power of assurance of salvation, too. Oh, I, you know, we've talked about that. We could spend a whole hour on our insurance of salvation. This passage right here is one of the most powerful ones. And if you think about it, any contract, there's oftentimes a deposit or an escrow. If you're going to buy a house, for example, you would put down a deposit. Uh, just pay cash. <laughs> for the house? Yeah. So no escrow. No escrow. So... That escrow typically for the rest of the people is, is put on deposit with the bank that says, I'm going to put down $10,000 with a promise that I'm going to buy your $300,000 house later, mm-hmm. right? And it, but if you back out of your promise to buy the house, what happens to your deposit? You lose it. You'd lose your deposit. So if God didn't fulfill his promise that you have this future inheritance, he would lose his deposit. Now, can God lose his Holy <laughs> Spirit? Can God lose his deposit? No. No, he can't. So it's one of these passages, powerful passages, that say once you are born again and saved, you have eternal life, and how long is eternal life? It's eternal. Mm -hmm. So amen. Step seven, do we have time? Not really. No. (laughs) I'm just being honest. Well, yeah. we're we're halfway done and we're halfway into the show, so we're actually sitting We're doing good. good, aren't we? We are. Yeah, I like the pacing of this. We're talking to Jeff Redorn, and we're doing an addendum to his End Time series. If you uh, saw or if you listened to that series on Revelation, I think it's up on the website. Rosie, is it is it up and running already? It's uh, it's in hold. We're it's, changing your website a little bit, but if people want it, they can okay they can email me and I can give it to and, them. Yes, and this episode will be added to that, and you can binge listen to all of it at once if you like. <laughs> So we're going to come back and we're going to continue uh, this talk on the bride, the groom, and the wedding banquet. Jeff Verdorn's my guest, and we will be right back. Let's get it. 
Back with Jeff Verdorn, and we're doing an addendum to our uh, end time series. We're calling this addendum the bride, the groom, the wedding banquet. Now, we've been going through 12 steps of first century marriage process. We got, I think, all the way up through six. So we're now on number seven. Jeff, what is number seven? So number seven was called the mikvah, uh, and it included an immersion of the bride-to-be in, in water as part of a ritual purification prior to the wedding. And, of course, I think this is clearly symbolized by the baptism of a believer, a believer's baptism in water, in immersion, uh, after you believe in Christ and, and are saved. Uh, now, now, please note, I want everybody to understand, if you haven't been baptized or if you weren't immersed in your baptism after you were a believer— Understand that to be included as the bride, water baptism is not required. I do not believe that water baptism is required to be saved. I believe that the true baptism that is talked about like in Acts chapter 10 and Acts chapter 11 is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And if you have believed and are saved, you have been baptized with the Holy Spirit. You've received the Holy Spirit. You've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. And I think that's the baptism that is required unto salvation to be included as the bride of Christ. So there. So this was the mikvah, and it was a purification uh, process. There were tons of baptisms back then, weren't there? You would you would immerse uh, utensils and pots, and there's all kinds of ritual cleansings that happened all the time. There is. It wasn't just about Christianity. It's about um, many different philosophies and groups would have a baptism kind of process to show that you are now affiliated with this particular group. Mm-hmm. And Christianity did did this, this a very similar thing. Now, also note that this baptism by immersion, uh, I don't want to—we should have talked about this— also represents our death, burial, and resurrection in Christ right. in the process of a water baptism as a believer. Right. So when you believed— uh, many people were baptized the moment they were believed to say, hey, I couldn't see this baptism of the Holy Spirit, but I'm going to do this physical baptism to show that I now affiliate with Christ. Yeah, repent and be baptized. That was peanut butter and jelly, wasn't it? I mean, that yeah. was that's how you identified yourself. <laughs> that's kind of at, sticky, wouldn't it? Kind of get all in well, between your... just uh, follow me here. Okay. Just, but that was the way you were publicly identifying as well. Yes, I am absolutely. now joining this way called... Oh, wasn't it called the way? It was called the way. Yeah, yeah Acts called. They were called the so way. So I'm making a public declaration that I'm now part of the the, the way. I am now a believer. It is, and 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 really, uh, you know, Jesus says things like, "If you profess me before men, I will profess you before my Father." Um, he wants us to plant our flags for him, and that's really what our baptism is about. I'm with Jesus, and that is an important part in many people's lives. That says, "I now." Uh, you know, attach myself to Jesus Christ, and I'm going to show it to the world through my baptism. All right, where are we? Step eight. So I got one more question about the mikvah. Was that a private uh, baptism? Was it a public thing? Was it we're going to immerse the bride because this is the bride-to-be because this is part of the process, and we're going to do this in the backyard with no no one looking, or we're going to have people over, or (laughs) what— Do you know anything about the ceremony? A, a little bit. I think the process was generally a, a private ceremony with the bride's closest friends okay. because obviously the groom wasn't there. The groom is going to depart, as we're going to see in a minute. And uh, and so while he's away, they would go through this purification process. So 
Um, but remember, I mean, John baptized people out in the Jordan River. There was probably lots of people there as well. So I, I just think whenever we try to put some rules behind our, you know, ordinances in the church, I think we get in trouble. I think you can have a baptism with a small group of people and a large group of people. Our church does lake baptisms, and I can tell you, whenever if you were to attend one of those, you would be blessed because you hear people talk about their faith and why they want to now follow Christ. So, however it works. Mm-hmm. Step eight: the groom would depart. Where's he off to? Well, he says, once the marriage covenant was sealed, the groom would leave, and he'd go prepare a place in his father's house. I go and prepare a place for you, right? We just read in in John chapter 14. So oftentimes it would be a chamber in his house or an addition onto his house. Uh, it didn't actually have to be attached to his house. Maybe it's just in that same village, but that was going to be the marriage uh, dwelling place once the bride and the groom came together. So he says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. The first century Jew would have understood what Jesus was referring to in John chapter 14. And we see then in Acts chapter 1, Jesus goes up to heaven, right? Bodily, physically, invisibly, he departs and he's hid by the clouds and he has gone to now prepare a place for us. Cool. Wow. That's so neat. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we're on step eight. We still got a few to go. It gets cooler. Here, step nine. Now, the bride, after the groom left, is just supposed to be ready for the groom's return. That's all she had to do was just be ready. Now, the Jewish bride is said to be consecrated or set apart to her bridegroom. Well, what are we? We have been set apart by God. That's what that word sanctified means. Remember I read that earlier in Ephesians. We have been sanctified. Jesus said in John 17, sanctify them with truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify is the Greek hagiazo, and it simply means to be set apart for special purposes. As the engaged bride-to-be to the groom, Christ, we have now been set apart for him. Cool. You are now holy, set apart. In fact, that's what that that word means, saints. Remember Paul says he starts on many of his letters, I don't know if it's everyone, but just a lot of them, to the saints in Ephesus, to the saints in Colossae. You know what that word is? That's that word hagios again, where it just means holy, set apart unto God. So you, just like the first century bride, have been set apart. You've been sanctified. It's a stretch for a lot of people to understand that they are holy. It is. So this get, gets back to that identity question from earlier. That and and really, in when we've talked about the body, soul, and spirit in previous shows, we have been made holy, blameless, righteous spiritually. Now the problem is, while God calls us to live out that holiness, none of us do it very well. Now, do we? We fall short every day. But thank goodness, when we fall short, we don't lose our salvation. Mm -hmm. He's the one kept in heaven for us, shielded by God's power until the redemption of those who are Christ Jesus. So, yeah, he is the one who keeps our salvation secure for us. Cool. Step 10. All right. Here's where it gets to the end times. At an unannounced time, the groom would return for the bride. 
Hmm. This was typically at night, and it was typically announced with the sound of the shofar, the trumpet blast. Now, remember, in John 14, the rest of that passage was, and I go and prepare a place for you, and I will come back to take me, to take us, to be with you where I am also. Well, where is Jesus? Well, he went up to heaven in Acts chapter 1. That's where he's at today, seated at the right hand of the Father. So he's going to come back and take us to be with him. Well, that's the rapture of the church. Do you remember we saw the bride in heaven prior to the second coming? So this is one of the reasons I believe in what's called the pre-trib rapture, that prior to the seven-year tribulation, we need to be caught up together with him, and that's exactly what 1 Thessalonians 4 says. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command in the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God. There's that shofar, right? Mm-hmm. And the dead in Christ will rise first. And after that, we who are alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. There's the groom returning for his bride and taking her up to heaven. Amazing. Perfect picture. Perfect picture indeed. Now, the Bible states that you cannot know the hour or the day that Christ will return for his bride. And the bride did not know the hour or the day that her bride would return for her. And so that's why we see passages such as Matthew 24, where it says that just as in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. This is the rapture now. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking and giving in marriage right up until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what was going to happen until the flood came and washed the people away. So we did not, Noah didn't even know, when he did not know the day that the flood was going to start, right? So, and neither can we know when this is all going to happen. And even though we don't know when it's going to happen, we know that it is going to happen because he's promised it, right? Mm Mm-hmm. All right, so we know that one day the groom will come back. Step 11, the bride and the groom would then be in the wedding chamber, this addition that he built onto his father's house, for seven days. Now, I think that seven days is symbolic of the seven-year tribulation, that just as the bride would be up in in the house, the father's house, in the addition to the father's house, for seven days, and at the end of the seven days, they would burst forth Now for the wedding banquet, so too the bride of Christ is caught up to heaven. We will be up in heaven for seven years, and we come down with Jesus at the second coming and have what? A wedding banquet. Same, same. Number 12, and that is number 12, the final step. At the end of the seven days, the bride of the group would come out and join all their invited guests and have a great wedding feast. This is the second coming of Christ. The bride and the groom are seen bursting forth out of heaven, coming down to earth. Revelation 19, 14, and the armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses, dressed in fine linen, white and clean. And there's the first century Jewish process. That if you now understand that, and you go back to the book of John, when Jesus says, I go and prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will certainly come back and take you to be where I am also. Now, that's what they would have understood. 
that process, it would have been clear. Oh, if he's going away, he's going to come back and take us mm -hmm. to be with him. So I want you to notice that there's two truths. One, the bridegroom comes for his bride and takes them to his father's house. And two, the bride and the groom come out together for the feast. Well, the Bible describes those as the rapture of the church where we're caught up to heaven and the second coming when we return with Christ to earth. So there's your parallels to the first century Jewish tradition. That's really fascinating. It doesn't surprise me at all that Jesus is speaking in a way that everyone's going to instantly understand and identify with. He did. I mean, he often uses the understandable to explain what, what they would have understood or seen, especially physical objects and things, to explain spiritual truths. Mm -hmm. So when he says, I'm the gate, I am the vine, um, he's using objects that they would have understood to explain spiritual truths. Mm -hmm. So I think he did the exact same thing here. Jeff, didn't you mention there was a movie about this coming out? Yeah, there is. Well, it's out already. It's out on uh, DVD. I think you can get it on Amazon. I think I ordered it on Amazon and watched it. It's a very good movie. Uh, in, in, in fact, there's uh, several kind of prophecy experts that put this together, and they actually have reenactments, and they walk through um, all of these steps of this Jewish process in kind of a documentary, and it's called, um, I forgot the, Before the Wrath, Before mm -hmm. the Wrath, and it's a great um, kind of documentary reenactment piece of explaining these biblical truths uh, and the history of the Jewish bride and groom process. You've been, but you've been teaching this forever. I have been. It's one of these things that it's such a powerful testimony to. I use this when I talk about the pre-trib rapture, mm -hmm. but it's always the last thing I talk about because it's it's not. How do I say this? I used to say this is now this is not a biblical reason, right? It's not a you can't point to a verse and say this is a biblical reason for a pre-trib rapture. But the imagery is so powerful. But I'd never done it to this depth before and never mm -hmm. really studied it to this depth. And once you do, you realize, oh my goodness, I need to do this every time I do the end times class. So Indeed. All right, we'll take a break. We'll be back more of Jeff Redorn, the bride, the groom. The wedding banquet. If you heard something you need a little clarification on, you can always text me the question to Dorn, we're talking about the bride, the groom, and the wedding banquet. This is an addendum to our Revelation End Time series. I'm going to have to go back and listen to this again, maybe more than once, Jeff. This is such good stuff. It's, so, it's such fun to see what Jesus was using as uh, an, an analogy for people to understand. Or it's just some coincidence. Or, or it's some <laughs> coincidence, yeah. <laughs> Whatever. Isn't it amazing? It it truly is. And uh, and just think about 
that he knew this plan before the foundation of the world. Mm-hmm. So, and it, and now it's playing out. So, so we've gone through these 12 steps. I'm sure you probably don't remember them. I don't know if I could do them without my notes here, but um, obviously the first century wedding process uh, in Israel parallels the biblical truths that we see. So we see the, the groom getting engaged. We see the promises that are made, the covenants that, ma- that are made. The groom goes away. He prepares a place. And then one day he comes back for the bride to take him to their father's house. And that's exactly the biblical truth that we see as it relates to the rapture of the church. And then at the end of the seven days for the marriage or at the end of the seven years for the bride of Christ, the bride and the groom burst forth, and then there's this wedding banquet. And if we have time in this last segment, I wanted to to do one thing, because I think most people understand the second coming. I mean, Jesus comes back to earth. He sets up his kingdom. But this rapture concept, um, you know, it's like more Christians go, well, what is the rapture? What is it all about? And so I like to point out that the rapture of the church is really simply our resurrection day. Jesus, when he rose from the grave, was risen in his glorified body, right? Well, Scripture declares that just as Jesus received his glorified body, so too we will receive a glorified body. That day that we receive our glorified body is the rapture. I'm not sure it's a common understanding for believers to think that when Jesus rose from the dead, he was in his glorified body. Yeah, so— I don't think think it's common knowledge. Really? I mean, I think, you know... He's in his resurrected body, right? Yeah. But is that the symbolic of his glor- his glorified body? Yes. So so here's some of the clues. In fact, we, can, we only get clues about what this glorified body looks like uh, in two places, really. 1 Corinthians 15, which is kind of described as the resurrection chapter, and the post-resurrection appearances of Christ— so what were some of the things that he did? What were the, some of the characteristics of this glorified body? Well, right away, Mary comes up and grabs him, right? He's touched. So we know that his glorified body is physical. It's tangible. You can touch it, right? It's, it's, some, it's a different kind of flesh, but it is real. It's flesh. They touched it. He also, but he was able to disguise his appearance in mm-hmm. some way. Remember to Mary? Yes. She didn't recognize him right away. And the two men on the road to Emmaus, yeah. they didn't recognize him. And yet then eventually he reveals himself in some way and they are able to, to recognize him. And kind then he a, disappears. It kind of, he can appear in a room all of a sudden and disappear in a room. So he disappears and then appears in the locked room with his disciples. So yeah. no fleshly body, earthly fleshly body can do that. But in his glorified body, he was able to do that. In fact, twice he appears in a in a you room. You have not seen David Copperfield's show in <laughs> Vegas. Just so you know, Jeff. He he made a he made a ship disappear. I guess he disappeared. Yeah, he disappeared. Too. Yeah. But um, you're right. I think that most people don't understand that you know this earthly body. God says flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven. So we're not going to heaven in this body. I also don't think that people fully understand that this body is just a temporary dwelling. This is a temporary home. We all know this instinctively. This body's wasting away. Have you noticed? This body, and the older I get, the more I notice it. It is wasting away. In fact, the Bible says that it came from the dust of the earth, and it's going to return to the dust of the earth. It's perishable. And that's why 1 Corinthians 15 says that the perishable must be clothed in the imperishable. And that's our glorified body. So that's why Paul and Peter, actually, both, uh, Peter says he lives in the 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 
the tent of his body, First Peter says. A tent is a temporary dwelling. Paul uses the same language in 2 Corinthians 5 when he says, Now we know that if this earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house. Well, that's our glorified body. So the rapture is simply the day when the church, whether you're dead in Christ, up in heaven right now, or alive and remain, those of us who will be alive when that trumpet blows, all of us will receive our glorified body on that day, and now we will receive a, a glorified body just like Christ. So then 1 Corinthians 15 will come true. So what is it is with the resurrection of the dead? The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. And just as we have borne the likeness of the earthly man, Adam, so right now we are in Adam, so shall we bear the likeness of the man from heaven, Jesus, in his glorified body. Now, I often get at this point in classes, well, what will our glorified bodies look like? Will our scars still be there? Well, Scripture doesn't really say, but Jesus' scars are still visible. But I think there's something very special and eternal about his scars. I agree. There isn't anything eternal about my scars, right? right? So I don't think we'll have scars. Well, how old will I be? Well, in eternity, how old are you? <laughs> I, well, I'm, you know, if there's, in fact, some people describe it as there really is no time in eternity. We'll be timeless. So how old are you going to be? I, I don't know. You're timeless. You're ageless. We will be living in time in a timeless eternity, though, right? Because time will exist in eternity, right? Because we'll hear music, and music is all about timing. Uh, that's true. Time, I mean, rhythm, sound. Look, God says the eye has not seen nor yeah, the that's ear. True. That's we true. don't even we'll leave know. it at that. Yeah. So, but we, you know, how tall will I be? Will I still be overweight? Uh, will I still be? You know, will. Well, will my hair grow back? Now, that one is biblical. I know your hair is going to grow back, so it's, that's going to happen yeah. for sure. But you see what I'm saying? Look, I don't know. Jesus at least appeared to many like his earthly self, so I think we will have a general appearance like our earthly self, only a glorified version of our earthly self. So it will be perfect, whatever it is. As the grass withers and the flower falls so too all men are like grass. This body, death, has proven to be about 100% on every man that's ever walked the face of the earth. And it amazes me why much of the world doesn't ask this simple question, what happens when I die? For Christians, we have an answer. Yeah. The, the grass perishes, the wind blows over it, and it's remembered no more. Uh-huh. And I can't fathom that. It seems to me that uh, this is a great place to start when you're talking to your friends and loved ones who don't know the Lord. Have you ever thought about what happens when you die? Because God says in Ecclesiastes that he puts eternity in man's hearts. We should know this. We should know that there's something after death for everybody. Yeah. Now, All right, let's get to the menu at this banquet. <laughs> the best, menu yes because it's getting dinner time for all of us well we except for our friends in Hartford they probably already eaten 
we know that there's a wedding feast. There's actually several passages in the Bible about this. And I, by the way, I don't want anybody to confuse with this with the great supper of God. That is when God pours out his wrath on the earth and all the armies and the birds come, and that's called the great supper of God. So I wanted to make sure that people understand. This is the marriage supper of the Lamb. So this is a great feast. We're now into the kingdom. Only believers are going to be there, and we will be with the Lord. And also, by the way, we as the bride are not the invited guests. We're not invited to our own wedding banquet. We're the bride. We're the guest of honor. So some, a couple places in the gospel talks about the invited guests to the wedding. That's not us. That's not the church. We're not those invited. Um, those are the ones who believe and are saved and make it through the tribulation and enter into the millennial kingdom. So I wanted to make that point too. But Isaiah 25, what's on the menu? says this, On the mountain of the Lord Almighty, we will prepare a feast of rich foods for all people, a banquet of aged wines, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. That's out of the Bible, huh? That's right out of the Bible. I love that. Jeff, what a, it's been a great hour. Thank you very much for this addendum to the end time study. It was great. Loved it. I loved it too. Thanks, Thank Bill. You. Jeff Dorn has been my guest. He is um, uh, also... He's got a great series that's coming out on our webpage. You'll have to check it out. But that's all we have for today. I look forward to seeing you tomorrow. Have a great night, everyone. God bless. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.